What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got BJ Larson. Being able to work with your teammates, there's so much work that goes into it that when you're actually finally there for that hour or two, it makes it all worth it. And the time put in goes away. And all you think about is the reward at that moment. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. BJ, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me on the show. I look forward to it and appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. So uh, I like that you're one of the few Larsons out there who spells their last name with an E-N. Let's just get that out of the way, the proper <laughs> spelling. You know what? I, I noticed that and you know I appreciate someone knows how to spell correct. <laughs> right? I'm sure we've got some Norwegian ancestors together somewhere back there. Exactly. Um, so uh, I think it's going to be a fun show today. Um, I, I, we're obviously big fans of continuous improvement and, and the methodologies, uh, results that, that it can produce. Um, and we're going to talk about the work you do at, at Medline and the medical industry and, and project you did for Thermal Fisher and, and applying these principles. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk about personal continuous improvement program and, and your own kind of, uh, <laughs> project working on yourself, making it all the way to the NFL. Um, I think kind of to start with there, I, you know, I feel like so often we get told we're only allowed to do one thing in life and you have to focus and that's the only thing you can do. And that needs to define who you are as a person, as I'm the person who does this one thing. Yet you look at the Renaissance, you look at Leonardo da Vinci or Richard Branson or these people who, who do multiple things, right? And there's principles of they focus on one thing at a time while they're doing multiple things, stuff like this. But, but they prove people can do more than one thing. So uh, I, one of the things I thought was most interesting hearing about your sports career is, you know, people see here, you know, six foot five, 275 pound NFL player. They don't think state champion tennis player. <laughs> tell us about tennis. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not something that, that comes to mind. And every time I tell someone that, they think that I'm joking. So, you know, I eighth grade, uh, one of my good friends, Taylor Ballam, said, hey, come play tennis with me and my cousins. Started playing. I liked it. I started taking lessons all through high school. Um, Taylor and I played doubles together. And we 
before we knew it, our senior year, we were taking our team to a state championship and we, we got a trophy. So, you know, it was something, you know, I was multifaceted um, athlete in, in high school and it was something that I loved, something I enjoyed. And, you know, we were able to come away with some hardware, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, sure. So thinking about tennis, um, you know, it's obviously a sport with a huge global following. Um, in your mind, when it comes to tennis specifically, there's a lot of kids who work hard. Um, what do you feel like were key insights that after enough practice you figured out and that really ended up giving you the edge that, you know, something you wouldn't have learned if you hadn't put in the hours? Something I, I learned is being able to really see the court and know where to, where to place the ball. I guess ball placement is the biggest thing. And after you hit thousands of rep, repetitions of hitting tennis balls, you're able to figure out where to place the ball um, at what time. And it's honestly, it's, it's a game of chess. Um, you're not going to go against someone that's freakishly athletic. And so it's really making sure you put the ball in the right spot and knowing where your opponent's at. And that's really what it is. Extremely, extremely elevated, um, accelerated game of chess, I guess you could say. <laughs> that's interesting. I haven't heard it described that way before. So um, how long do you feel like, you know, how many, how many months, how many years do you feel like it took before you could start to put the ball where you wanted it to be? Two, two years. Tennis is one of those sports that it, it's hard to just pick up. It's a skill sport. And until you have the repetition, you're not going to be able to do that. And, I mean, a serve, a fast, you know, kick serve or flat um, speed serve, that's one of the hardest things in sports, I think. To be able to place the ball in the correct spot on the other side of the net, I mean, you have a little square you have to place it in. You do it too soft, you're going to get crushed on the return. And so that's one of the hardest things I think there is to do in sports. Hmm. Um, you know, I remember, uh, I'd love to get your take on this. I remember reading a coaching book that was talking about what kind of questions coaches ask. And I know, uh, you know, you're really interested in the, uh, continuous improvement principle about, uh, respecting every individual that Shingo talks about. And, and so I'm sure you're talking to your 30 staff at work, but I remember somebody saying, when you're asking questions for some, to someone that you're helping, you're hoping for them to improve, Instead of saying something like keep your eye on the ball, which is usually like useless advice because people don't do it. They said, right. ask a question that requires the person to do the thing that you're interested. So like talking to a tennis student of saying, hey, which way do you think the ball is spinning when it's coming at you? Which requires them to keep their eye on the ball to try and figure that out. Um, did you Did you have any coaches that you felt like brought that level of thinking to your game or, or anything like that? Absolutely. I, like I said, I received tennis lessons, you know, the first part of high school and it was really recognizing how their racket was moving. You figure out how much top spins coming on the ball and the top spin to me as a tennis player means, okay, when it lands, it's going to bounce left, bounce right, bounce up. And so you can kind of, I guess, um, get ready for where the ball is going to be and adjust your swing and your racket placement accordingly. So you can, you know, get the ball where you want it to be um, on the court on the other side. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So, um, I know you, well, let, let's talk about this. You did not have the uh, average route to the NFL. You weren't, you weren't the high school student that was being scouted and, and watched the right, whole way. Right. Right. Um, right. Let's talk about this this rise here. You know, I know you did play basketball, but you mentioned you know coming out coming out of high school, you looked like a, a 
a basketball player, not a football player. Um, talk about becoming a walk-on, and uh, and let's talk about your your rise to the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, coming out of high school, we looked at buck ninety, buck ninety-five. Looked like a basketball player out there playing. Uh, played well. Wasn't really heavily recruited by any colleges. And um, then I went on my LDS mission for two years to Memphis, Tennessee, and I spoke Spanish. And you know, I ate a lot of a lot of Mexican food, gained 35 pounds, came back around 235, 240. And my high school football coach and my parents said, you know, I'd had the thought you should go walk on, uh, play college. So I looked at all the schools that were in the state of Utah and Utah State University seemed the best fit for me. And so talking with my high school coach, Mike Rivero, um, and coach Gary Anderson, who was then at Utah State, I walked on up there and within a year and a half, uh, my performance um, was dubbed worthy to receive a scholarship. I received a scholarship and continued working extremely hard in the off season. Put on another twenty five pounds uh, of muscle, I hope. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, I was able to go on to receive accolades in college um, as you know, second team All Mountain West and first team All Mountain West, national defensive lineman of the week, nationally recognized in multiple huge games with big opponents. And I was yeah, able let, to, let's talk about that for a second, actually. So, you know, it, I mean, it's not like you didn't play football before. You guys, you, you were on a state championship high school football team. But um, I, I want to talk about this for one second. I'm, I'm looking at an article here about you um, from your Utah State coach, Matt Wells, that says he's a self-made man. The guy's a man out there every week. Uh, he, pays through, he plays through the pain. He's, tremendously t- he's a tremendously tough kid. When we talk about... Uh, a field, a field corn in our building, and the kids that are no maintenance and tough. That's BJ. Talk, talk about the mindset that you brought to the team that that he's talking about there. The mindset I brought to the team that he's talking about there is really do what you have to do to get the job done, and not just do it yourself, but bring people along the way. You know, there's there's a train, and we want everybody on board. And do everything you can to make sure everyone's on the same page so that we can get that goal at the end of the day. And, you know, having that common goal, that common vision is is really what drives everyone. And as a team captain, it's my responsibility to make sure that everyone realizes that goal and that day in and day out, all of the things you did from lifting the weight room to studying film um, contributed to us as a team achieving that goal. Well, you know, in an age when social media and and celebrities are pretty self-focused and, and we certainly have a lot of examples in the media of sports stars who are pretty self-focused, there's there's reporters who talk about you and, and specifically pull out the point that you that you are very uh, uncharacteristically interested in the team performance over your own performance. Um, where do you think where do you think that came from? Why do you think why do you think you uh we're more of a, a team guy than a look at me guy. You know, the team um, is a defensive lineman. I, I found that our group, because we were so, we relied so much on one another. If one of us performed well, or if one of us performed, you know, not to standard, it affected everyone uh, in the room, everyone in the group. And so, I mean, you're only as strong as your weakest link and taking that into account and, you know, respecting every individual in your room, you can really 
get more done as a group than you can as an individual. And you were studying those Shingo principles while you were at school, right? You were. I was. Yes, I was. I mean, Shingo Institute is obviously based out of Utah State University. And I was able to um, be involved and learn more about how not only is incorporated into the business world, but really every aspect of life, I guess you could say, especially on a football team. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we're going to get back to more of the, the, the work side of things in a minute, but let's talk about some of the fun stuff. Let's talk about a couple of your games. Um, I'm thinking about the story uh, when you were, you're up against USC and you sacked that, uh, the guy, um, who, who, does Cody, yeah, who does Cody play for now? I believe he's, he's a Browns. Yeah. He just, he just got drafted to the Browns. So quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. And you got three sacks in the same game against him. Is this right? Oh, no. The, the three sacks was against Wake Forest. But I got three quarterback hits. And by quarterback hits, I mean, if you YouTube PJ Larson, USC, you're going to find a video of me laying some hits on him. And, you know, after the game, he came up. Yeah, this is the part I liked. Yeah, he's like, he came up to me after the game. He's like, wow, that is the hardest I've ever been hit. <laughs> so, you know, and side note, funny that he's with the Browns because one of the games I played, I actually knocked Johnny Manziel onto his back. So I guess that's one of my claims. <laughs> that's your claim so, to fame. Okay. Uh, I well, guess. So, I, so this, I, obviously, I, this obviously had a big enough effect that when you're playing Fresno State and the, you know, the guy who's now the quarterback for, for the Oakland Raiders, uh, Derek Carr, he comes up before and says, which one of you guys is the one who hit my friend Cody Kessler, right? Exactly. And I, you know, I raised my hand. I was in game mode yet. Uh, for that. <laughs> and then, you know, Fresno State, they're all about getting their – they have a very intense crowd. Their fan base is very enthusiastic. First game of the – they, they, they always try and do a trick play or something to get the crowd, the fans going wild. So it was my goal, you know, don't let that happen. So just after he'd said that, very first play of the game, I got a sack on him, and the crowd went very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're living up to your reputation, huh? Exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk about this. Um, you know, I think what's interesting – BJ. Oh, I think we lost you there for a second. Oh, you're good. Okay. So, um, let's talk about this. Uh, when you, you know, everybody knows like the dream story of being first round draft pick or something like this. Right. And I, I think what I like about your story is you made it all the way there without it being handed to you and with without um maybe everyone saying oh that's obviously thing to do it's for sure going to work for you and you just worked your guts out anyways you you know you walk onto the team obviously a little older than the average player who's getting into college football um and and you decided to go the whole route with the otas and everything for getting on the nfl team talk about um talk about how tough this was when you you go uh i want to say it's fall training camp and in your first day you pull your hamstring is that right yeah yeah strain my hamstring the very first day it's frustrating because you know i've been working all off season all summer to get to where i wanted to be physically and you know that, that was definitely a setback it's very frustrating um something you know it's out of my control out of my control and you know it just came down to mental toughness and being able to get through that well, so this is what's interesting about this story, and I think it's a testament to your, your tenacity or your endurance or whatever, is you're out for a week with the hamstring, then you get an eye infection and almost go blind, so you're out for another five days, 
right? Yep. And here this is rookie minicamp. I mean, they're for sure going to keep the seven or eight guys that they've drafted. And they're cutting like crazy. There's like one to three people who are going to make it up, you know, after all of this. And you had worked hard enough in the OTAs that the coaches are like cutting other people and letting you rest up. Am, am I remembering that correctly here? Yes. Um, so uh, what was it about your OTAs? Like what, what did you do? I remember you t- telling me uh, what you felt like the big difference between college ball and NFL ball was. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yes. So the big difference I found was the speed of the game. Um, not only the mental aspect, but the physical movement on the field and being able to have the endurance to keep that speed up throughout the whole game and throughout the whole practice. And so, you know, um, in July, you know, after OTAs, you know, that's what I focused on. I performed very well in OTAs, and, you know, I'm, I like to think of myself as a pretty smart guy and being able to memorize the plays, implement them, read offenses, and know what audibles and changes to make, that, that's something else that set me apart. Um, and so that, you know, your extra effort in that cardio – they end up giving you a pass while you're out on the hamstring. You're potentially going blind, right? And right. They're, they're right. waiting for you. So um, yeah. before before we go back on to the continuous improvement stuff, the work stuff, uh, do you talk about what that's like to go? You know, you're put on your first NFL jersey in a real game. You're you're playing in your first real game. You get you know, well, let's just talk about your first two plays in your first NFL game in your life. Yeah, I mean, first of all, putting on an NFL jersey in an NFL stadium. I mean, that's something a kid dreams about his whole life. and Very, very few people get that opportunity. So I felt very fortunate and very blessed to be in that situation, and it was a surreal experience. Um, my very first play, I was able to get a tackle behind the line of scrimmage, tackle the, the ball carrier. So that, that's why I did my very first play. And then the second play, I was able to get a sack on the quarterback. I'm the one who tackled the quarterback um, and was able to get a, you know, they lost five, six, seven yards behind the line of scrimmage as well. You know, the, the crowd was going crazy. That was that was an awesome experience for me. And something, you know, I'll I'll cherish is, you know, my first two plays in the NFL. That's what I was able to do. I was able to make an immediate impact. <laughs> yeah. You know, from there, I realized I can play with these guys. Yeah. Well, um, I remember you talking about walking onto that field that day. And I, I thought it was such a good description where you, you were talking about, man, it made all the injuries worth it. It made all the all the workouts worth it. Talk, talk about that, that feeling of like, I'm actually, you know, I actually got here. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the work that goes into being able to put on an NFL Jersey, it's something that a lot of people have no idea what goes into it. All the, the workouts, all the offseason workouts, all the studying in the, the film room, knowing your opponent, knowing what to do. Um, the hundreds of plays you have to be able to know, um, be able to run, in the correct fashion, um, being able to work with your teammates. There's so much work that goes into it that when you're actually finally there for you know, that hour or two, it makes it all worth it, and the time put in goes away, and all you think about is the reward at that moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it definitely takes commitment and sacrifices, right? I thought, I thought you have a pretty unique story about uh, – Getting married in April, thinking you're going on a three-day camp. <laughs> how, how long have yeah. you been married before you left for the three-day the three day camp? Uh, a week and a half or something? How long had you been married before you oh, had to leave? 
<laughs> so you're married for two weeks and you're like, you know, honey, I'm, I got to go to my three day camp. And then what happens when you get there? Well, you know, we said a casual goodbye at the airport in three days. And then I get there and they're like, um, actually, you are all going to stay for a month and a half and do summer training. And we're like, okay. You know, we not only packed for three days, but said, did three day goodbyes. And so you know, when I told my wife that, it wasn't the best news, obviously, for any newlyweds to, to have to go through that. So it was it was rough. Well, but again, it's it is sacrifices, right? It's not the sacrifice. It it's the kind of sacrifice that not everybody knows. You get to you, you have to make for stuff like this, you know. Um, now let, let's go full circle for for everybody like my wife who's listening <laughs> and say so you did make it up to her and and took July and went. What'd you guys go do? Yeah, so my wife Keisha. She was incredibly supportive. I could not have done it without her. Um, she was always there to help me get through tough times. Um, she's, you know, my rock. And, you know, in July, we went to San Francisco. Uh, that's where we were able to get engaged, um, kind of go back, I guess you could say. And then we were able to go on a trip with my family to Lake Powell. You know, we got some R&R, spent some time together. And so that, that was really good. That was a lot of fun. I bet. So you took the month and made it up to her, huh? Exactly. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we should have her on. Ask her. Okay. That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.